Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short controlled bursts. I'm John Engel. And I'm Jason Heck, back from Minute 95, which begins with Hicks trying desperately to yank that facehugger off of Ripley and ends with Ripley saying he figured he could get an et. An et. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what she says. We, uh, as far as it goes. So here's the thing. We start in the middle of Ripley essentially in a death struggle with her greatest nightmare. A face hugger is wrapped around her neck with its with its tail. And what do we remember? She was terrified of the face hugger when it was dead in the first movie. So this is this is her living nightmare. It has all come to pass. All the firepower has meant nothing. All of the assurances have meant nothing. She is now in a death grip struggle with a face hugger. However, Help is just a flick of the bick away, and help has now burst in in the form of several heavily armed Marines. So what we have here is Hudson, of course, shoving Newt out of the way. And here's something I think is pretty funny. He, we already know that ammo is at a premium, 50 rounds each, right? Uh, sure. You're right. Which again, I don't understand how how they only have how, how they have pulse rifles with about 50 rounds each when all the magazines were collected anyway. So the pulse rifles should actually have 95 rounds each, but we're going to overlook that. So we know that ammo is at a premium. And what does Hudson do? He uncorks what has to be 20 to 25 or more pulse rifle rounds, trying to kill the face hugger that was after Newt. Yeah, and uh, my question about this is, does it take this much to kill a facehugger, or is Hudson missing? Well, that's that's there. There are two ways that this can go. One, Hudson's a, a lousy shot, or two, he is so repulsed by the facehugger. Now, I believe we have Hudson firing. We then cut to Hicks, Gorman, Vasquez trying to help Ripley. And then we cut back to Hudson, and yet he has to fire again a burst of, I don't know, six to ten rounds. And that's when you see the facehugger actually blown apart. So he's either a lousy shot, because we'll, we'll also notice that later in the minute, when Vasquez is called upon to execute the second, it takes her nothing. It takes her one smooth, perfect burst of fire, and that one's totaled. I think that from a filmmaking standpoint, the diff, the disparity here between Hudson and, and Vasquez um, also has to do with the, 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 the sort of frantic nature of the scene, right? So we're in the middle. When Hudson is killing his facehugger, we're still in the middle of all this. It, it's frantic. We still got the screaming. We still got the struggling. The water is pouring down. Every kind of sound effect imaginable building up to a boiling point. When we get them throwing the facehugger off, and uh, and uh, Vasquez shooting it, that's the button, right? So it, it needs to be quick. and We don't need her shooting it like 15 sure. times. That would be redundant. We need the scene to then come to a quick 
like abrupt sort of relieving end. So I think from a filmmaking standpoint, that makes sense. And from a practical standpoint, as far as characterization, it makes sense because we know Vasquez is going to be better at shooting stuff than Hudson. That just makes sense. Well, we can also note that the M41A pulse rifle has a very short collapsible stock. It's, it's an adjustable stock. But I think the only people we really see, actually the only person who I think genuinely fires it like a rifle, as in pushing the butt against the shoulder and taking careful aim down the sights, is Ripley when Hicks is teaching her about his 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 best friend. Hudson constantly fires from the hip. In in, in fact, in, in his sort of his last hurrah, his his personal Alamo, you know, he's constantly he's shrieking obscenities, but constantly firing from the hip. He's not really aiming. So for all we know, he doesn't hit a single alien in the final confrontation. But in this in this, we see that, you know, in fact, even with the last one, the last burst He's firing single-handed. He braces up the the you know tool rack or whatever the cart with his boot to pin it, and then fires one-handed like a pistol. So we know that accuracy is not a premium for Hudson. I will give him credit though. The kicking the boot up, you know, kicking his foot up uh, was was good thinking. Like you gotta make sure to keep that thing pinned. I could see him easily just starting to shoot at the thing and letting it kind of slip loose. But he was instinctual enough to kick that boot up. And it makes for a really nice shot, too. You get this low-angle shot. You get the boot out in the foreground. You get the gun aimed down. You get a really nice look at his like skull, his knifed skull that's on his uh, yeah. um, armor there. So it's a nice, Yeah, it's a nice hero shot for him, actually. And then he doesn't uh, <laughs> behave that much like a hero in it, but still. He actually it's, shoves it's, her behind him, too, if you notice that. He doesn't just shove her aside. Yeah. He moves her like a you know, you know like a father's instinct would be is to he moves the child directly behind him right so i'll take that back i mean it's not that he's not being heroic he's just not very being a very accurate marksman so um and, and you know it's notable i think it was actually in the last minute we failed to mention it is that she knew calls for him yeah when they get into the room she calls for hudson to come help i think that she i don't know was there some sort of camaraderie built during that scene where uh he tells her to put her in charge. Maybe when she throws uh, him a salute, and she's like, you and I are foxhole buddies now. Yep. Uh, I don't know. Or maybe she actually uh, does think that she is in charge of him, since he said that, and she's ordering him. <laughs> right. Knowing, she, knowing how weak-willed he is, that, that she's the one adult, he's the one adult that she can actually exert command presence on, she instantly well, orders him to her aid. Yes, I'm sure I that's... Mean, he seemed to defer to her authority earlier. He said, put her in charge. She's like, salutes him and says, I, okay, I'll take the, uh, take the challenge. Right. So when and he comes into the room, she says, she's like, Hudson, get over here. You know, she's like Apone. Right. Uh, it just sounds like she's shrieking and asking for help. Sounds like a mix of Apone and Scorpion for Mortal Kombat, really. There, kind of there just you go. Get over here. Yeah, exactly. So we have one facehugger in a in a life and death struggle with Ripley where its tail is starting to certainly based on the horrifying sounds that she is making crush her neck and it's taking three strong capable humans to get it the hell off her and that's only possible because those questing spidery legs have not wrapped around her head yet she's managed to fend it off long enough that only the tail is on there but it still lets you know exactly how capable the you know this this small weak form of the xenomorph is that it's taking three people to wrestle it off of her yeah 
No, it's it, and it's kind of an impressive performance on everybody's part because you know there's nothing about this prop that is difficult to handle. Yeah, three people have to act like it is. It's it's pretty good prop acting we get here. But yeah, that thing is crazy strong. It, it, and you know, I can't help but to think we've talked a little bit about the limitations of the effects here, and then but how they were overcome by just good solid filmmaking. Uh, it, it makes you wonder right here when you have this uh, face hugger on Ripley. Uh, as you discussed earlier, this is the uh, living personification of her worst nightmare. Um, what a different filmmaker besides James Cameron had have added a detail or two to make this worse in a way. Like we get the tail around the neck. That's pretty bad. But we do have an element to the facehugger that's not ever portrayed here, which is this proboscis, right, that comes out and shoves down the throat. I'm thinking, you know, if we get David Cronenberg's aliens or if we got Paul Verhoeven's aliens or something like that, we would definitely have a Ripley with a proboscis shoved. They would have had to pull her this thing out right. of her. She so would have it yeah. out. It would have been extremely sexual, and it would have been Giger beyond Giger's normal level. They yeah. would, yeah, they would have amped it up. And if it had been a, a different filmmaker who was worse, like uh, your Michael Winner, for example, it would have been her whimpering, "Oh God, no!" When she was fighting the facehugger. But it yeah, would exactly. have actually been as as incredibly sexually um, suggestive and gross as um, a body horror fan like Cronenberg or just a I love to shock you fan like Verhoeven would have made it. Right. And, and you know, in my mind, I, I'm curious, I'd be curious to see an alternate universe version of this movie where it was done by Cronenberg or Verhoeven or something. But in this particular case, because of the tone of this film, um, I don't think we need any suggestion of sexuality really in this one, right? I don't know if it's thematically appropriate for aliens. So just to have the 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 fear factor alone, without the added, you know, color, so to speak, of a of a, of a sort of like a rape metaphor. Uh, I think it's right. I think we just need to be afraid. We don't need to be sickened here. Right, and especially again, knowing her history with it, knowing the abject horror of the thing um, for her. You know, again, it was 57 years ago for everybody else, not for her. For her, you know, that thing was on Kane's face, her friend who was alive not that long ago. Um, you know, Ash was poking and prodding at it not that long ago. So, you know, for her, this is, this is all very fresh and very traumatic and very, very, very real now. Now she has her own you know, that thing which was horrifying enough on Kane is now inches from her face. That's horrifying. And yet the Marines, Hicks in particular, are there to save her. And that's, you know, I think more than, than the locator wristband and more than his empathy, this cements his importance to her. You know, it will be Hicks who will who will help try to rescue Newt with her and ignore, you know, well, not ignore, but at least put the, uh, the countdown on hold and, and, and the dash for rescue on hold to go get Newt. So Hicks is now firmly not not really a white knight, but the one that she knows she can count on. Yeah, and I think it's notable too that we get a little bit of a like a family photo kind of here at the end of the scene. Once Vasquez has uh, blown the facehugger apart, Newt jumps in and we get a group hug with uh, Newt, Hicks, and Ripley, which, which Kind of, we kind of think of them as the family because in the end, that's that's who gets away. You're absolutely right. It's it's the the people who are who it is the emotional heart of the movie grouped together. We you know the the girl that that makes Ripley 
come out of her shell and, and conquer her own fear and the Marine who helps her do that and helps to keep them both alive. Yeah. It's, it's actually pretty great as she manages to gasp out her accusation about who was behind the whole plot. It was, it was Burke. Yeah. And of course uh, I, we have to mention that Hudson has to come in. He can't just say, yeah, the other facehugger's dead. Because it's dead. It's history, man. It's always got to be something. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that was improvised, too. Well, he can't just say something. He just has to some <laughs> say it colorfully. It's he's great. Not, he's Look. not going to say mission accomplished, is he? No. 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 And, of course, Hudson also um, has some pretty strong ideas about vigilante justice, we learned. That's true. We'll find that out real quick. I mean, he is ready to grease that rat. <laughs> <laughs> rat son of a bitch right now without even hearing the whole story again super colorful he's not saying i find you guilty um and here's here's another interesting shot and in, so we have you know ripley announcing what's going on we have a very nervous looking bird hudson threatens ex- you know summary execution we sort of i believe it's a pan i think over toward hicks and Ripley, Ripley on the left. And what do we see? We see Gorman pace, you know, turn his back and pace away, sort of throwing up his hands a little bit and abdicating responsibility once again. You, Gorman doesn't stand next to Hicks and listen and, and try and, and offer any insight as an officer or, or even just collaborate on decision making. We see him turn his back and, and walk away. He paces, you know, several steps away and and then he's sort of blocked from the camera but to me it's very telling you know he's it could be because this is the final realization that burke you know was not deserving of his faith and maybe he had placed you know maybe burke had said you know you're gonna make you know captain before the end of this mission i can pretty much guarantee it i'm you know i'm sure burke probably promised him you know or a corporate you know, security cushy job with Wayland Utani or something like that. And maybe he's seeing that go away. I'm not sure, but I think that's a very interesting bit when William Hope turns around and walks away um, several paces from the confrontation. Yeah, that's a good call. I, I, I hadn't really put that much into it, but you're right. There had to be promises made. We saw, we see how Burke operates. Um, so in order to get, he wants people on his side, right? And we get the, we got the idea that Gorman was on his side. You know, he was, at least by his side on in multiple occasions. So they have some kind of a relationship and you would imagine that every once in a while Burke's like, yeah, oh, I think this is going to go good, buddy. I think you're going to be, you're going to come out of this on top. You know, I think once we get through all this and uh, you know, I guess you could try to, to say that maybe Gorman had some inkling of an idea of ulterior motive, but uh, there's nothing suggesting that really. So, uh, but yeah, you could read a lot into that moment and William Hope's performance here in this in this shot. And I do. And you did. I did. I mean, you know, mission accomplished. It's history, man. It's, it's history, man. Well, I think that this week is history, man. It is. <laughs> oh my gosh. Bert confirmed as a, as a real murderer, not just a guy willing to to put colonists in danger, but actually commit murder. It's been a pretty yep. exciting week. I hope I'll be yep. invited back sometime. Uh, we'll see. I'm we'll excited see. about the Outland Minute. Oh, I've got we'll a see. lot to say about the Outland I, we, Minute. Believe we all know. you, me. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Um, 
Visit us over at AlienMinute.com, on Instagram at AlienMinutePodcast, or on Twitter at AlienMinutePod. And uh, once again, I want to give a big shout-out to uh, Pete the Retailer and Alex Robinson at Star Wars Minute. Thanks for coming up with this idea and loaning it out to us, guys. All right, well, uh, that'll do it for Minute 95. We'll see you next week for Minute 96.